Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Today on the program, we welcome VP of Products Andrew Klee to the show. Andrew gives listeners an overview of the markets, where we're at, why we're in the most discounted recession in history, and how the U.S. and Canadian economies differ at this time. As the year slowly wraps up, Andrew reflects and says 2023 was all about inflation, interest rates, and an impending recession. But interestingly, you put them all together and the NASDAQ is still up 30%, S&P 15%, so risk assets are still behaving and so there's a lot of negative headlines in the market. He adds this is the most discounted recession in history because historically, you didn't really know that we were going into a recession, but now everyone expects it and is waiting. But the recession will be influenced by rates. If interest rates are higher for longer, Andrew says consumers will have to dial back their spending behaviors, which will hurt the economy. Andrew touches on the housing situation and mortgage market in Canada and the U.S. In the U.S., the mortgage is fixed and non-portable, whereas in Canada, rate resets every five years and is portable. He adds the U.S. consumers don't really care except if they are looking to move or to buy a new house. They only care about their lifestyle choices versus in Canada, we care about when interest rates go up. This podcast was recorded on September 25th, 2023. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada, ULC, or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. Hello, and welcome to Fidelity Connects. I'm Dave Bushnell. And on behalf of all of us here at Fidelity Canada, welcome to Fidelity Connects. Don't adjust your computer or your television. I am not Urian Timmer, but don't worry, Urian will be back next week. And as always, if you want to follow what Urian's up to, which is always interesting on several levels, entertainment, travel, markets, please make sure you follow him on social media. Now, I'm joined today by a familiar face to Fidelity Connects, and that is our head of product, Andrew Klee. Andrew, always good to see you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Now, Andrew and I were saying just actually before we came online here that Andrew and I were going to talk about the markets. It's obviously been a very interesting year, but then we received some very good news that Andrew and I had been waiting on for, I'll say, a couple of days now, and that is that we've just been received for our new product, and that's Global Equity Plus. And this is a product that Andrew and I have been excited. I'm going to say for, I'm going to say years, it's really probably been months, but really years in the sense that we are going to combine Hugo Lavallee, Mark Schmail, and Dan DuPont into one product. So something that's taken a lot of work and we're thrilled that we're really gonna, I'm gonna say split today up. Let's start up, Andrew, let's talk about the markets. Let's get your thoughts on where we've been. Obviously a very interesting year. And then in the back half, let's talk about how this new product uh, came to be and what obviously our advisor partners can expect from us. So maybe let's start off broad, but an interesting year called three quarters of the way through, give or take. What have you seen this year that you find interesting? Yeah, it's interesting because I wish we were not talking about this anymore, but it's inflation, interest rates and recession. But then you kind of put it all together and it's like the Nasdaq's still up 30%. The S&P's flirting with 15%. So 
risk assets are still behaving and there's a lot of negative headlines in the market. So I kind of take your pick on where you want to start and dive into that. Well, let's take the pick that the, you often hear many people talk about, you know, a hated rally or a loved rally. Mm-hmm. Would you call this sort of, to your point, a hated year in the sense that to your point, markets are up very nicely. I mean, mm-hmm. we're thrilled about the performance of a lot of the stuff we have here at Fidelity, but yet the headlines just still seem very, very negative on many of the things you just talked about. Yeah, it's probably the, I'm going to steal a term from Mark Schmel, the most discounted recession in the history. Right. Because everybody's talking about it. And it's one of those things that like historically, you didn't really know when we we're going into recession, all the data you kind of look at is backward looking. And now it just seems like everyone's waiting for that shoe to drop and it hasn't come out of the market yet. So it's really going to be rate dependent. And I think there's really big differences between the U.S. economy and the, the Canadian economy in terms of risks as it stands. So let's go into everybody's favorite topic that you can't go anywhere without talking about. So let's go into rates. So we got some interesting news last week. I thought it was interesting. The market heard it, decided to sell off. But I heard in there, there's only one more. Yeah. But nobody seemed to get excited about that. So do you see this as, you know, the end is upon us? Do you see this as their saber? Like, what are they doing here with these, with this messaging? Yeah, and in Canada, it's the same boat. One more, maybe. But it's going to be how long, right? And I think where the market sold off was... They removed the amount of cuts they expected forward-looking from the dot plot, which kind of just says, okay, we're actually going to be up here for longer. And when you look at growth within developed worlds, it's all about the consumer. We, we buy stuff to support our economy. And so if interest rates are higher for longer, maybe that consumer doesn't have as much runway as we thought we had before rates start getting more favorable. And we're going to have to dial back our spending behaviors. And if we do, that's going to hurt the economy. Um, I think the stark difference between Canada and the U.S. is the mortgage market. And I don't think it's really talked about. Like in the States, you get a 30-year mortgage and you don't have to rate reset it. So the Fed can hike rates and 85% of the market probably doesn't care if interest rates go higher um, because their mortgage is fixed for the next 25 years, 30 years, whatever that may be. So you're really only just hitting the people that are coming into the market or if you want to sell your home. The other thing that in the States that's really interesting is your mortgages are non-portable. So if you wanted to sell your house in the States, you can't take your mortgage with you to your new house. Mm. So that's kind of limiting the turnover because if you bought your house, so let's call it like a 2.5% interest rate with 30-year fixed, um, I'm not selling and refinancing at at 6% or whatever that number may be, 7%. Whereas in Canada, yes, we rate reset every five years, but I can also take my mortgage with me so I can sell my house I can take whatever balance is left on my mortgage, refinance the balance, whatever that may be. So that's kind of, I guess, a supply pro where we can increase supply for that reason, where the states say they don't have it. But you put it all together and you go, okay, the U.S. consumer doesn't really care other than if you're looking to move or buy a new house. So they're really just worried about like their, their lifestyle choices, where in Canada, we actually care about when interest rates go up uh, and it impacts the whole economy. Let's drill in on Canada because, again, talk about topics that everyone loves to talk about as Canadians is the houses, houses going up. It's interesting to me that all this stuff has happened, yet we haven't really seen the real estate market be hit hard yet. Yet we're reading that there was interesting data last week in the U.S. and Canada. Credit card debt is pre-pandemic highs, Mm. all these types of things. So how do you read into that for Canadians? Do you read that we just haven't seen it because sort of the pain hasn't worked itself through the system yet? Again, if we're talking ourselves into a soft landing, will it not be that bad? How do you see that playing out? So in Canada, I think we're still going through price discovery. You and I live in the same neighborhood. I can tell you my neighbor's house stood up on the market for 90 days, and rather than selling it at the the bids they were receiving, they took it down from the market. So I think there's this this area of price discovery 
where the sellers are saying my house is worth this and the buyers are saying my house is worth this. And we're probably at the widest bid-ask spread that we've had in the, the last 10 years, just yeah. given where interest rates are. And sellers aren't coming to terms with it. And they're not in position where they have to sell the house because you bought your house 10 years ago, like you're sitting on a lot of equity that you built up just through price appreciation. So you may not be forced to sell it yet, depending on where your mortgage is and what that is. So I think we, we are going through that period of, of, of price discovery. But then on, on the housing side, we have structural shortage. Like we, we need more houses. It, it's no surprise that immigration is driving a lot of that. Um, we just simply don't have enough houses. So that's the main priority of government. And until we can bring that supply on, you're gonna have that structural mismatch where there's more demand. So we're, we're kind of going through that price discovery. Um, that's not to say there's not softness in other areas like office space, dynamic hybrid and the pandemic changed that kind of forever. Um, so office is going through its, its kind of crisis. I don't wanna say where we are in that because we're still figuring out what return to work looks like. Financing is almost impossible in that space. So that's still probably sorting some stuff out there. Um, but there's a number of things at play. And I think where we are at is there was a lot of consumer saving in the pandemic because we weren't able to do anything. And that powder is starting to dry up and we're starting to see that come in the form of increased credit card balances. Right. And so where does that shake out from a, a housing standpoint is tough to say, but you're seeing huge bid ask spreads in the market where buyers and sellers are not agreeing on prices. The sellers haven't caved yet, um, so it'll be interesting to see because there is that supply imbalance that is supportive of the pricing. So we'll see where we, we kind of go in the next, let's call it six to 12 months. Let's go more global. Yeah. So we've talked a lot about for, I feel like for the longest time, so many theses were built on globalization and how do you take advantage of globalization? Yeah. Now we're seeing, hearing a word that you haven't heard in a very long yeah. time, which is deglobalization. Are you buying into this trend? Do you see these two trends colliding in any ways? Does it depend what industry or sectors we're talking about? Mm -hmm. How do you see deglobalization sort of taking effect on what we do here at Fidelity? It's crazy because I think I need to re-educate myself. Um, <laughs> like when you and I were in business school, like I took economics, it was like outsource the lowest cost producer, free trade, globalization was all we learned about. We're gonna produce economies of scale. We're gonna bring prices down. Then the pandemic hit, and I would say actually deglobalization probably started before the pandemic, just to be clear. Like we, we realized free trade wasn't great in terms of politics and all that stuff. So probably the trend started greater than like five years ago, but it really, really hit home um, in the pandemic when we couldn't get healthcare equipment, we couldn't get things that we needed because all of a sudden we re realized we're dependent on this country to produce whatever we need. And then they selfishly say, you know what? I'm not gonna export that to you. Um, or maybe the government's put on um, trade embargoes or trade interest tariffs, whatever that may be, um, to increase that cost. And we said, you know what, maybe we need to repatriate that. And now it's coming through inflation. Like the reality is, is if you can't outsource production to the lowest cost producer, we're going to increase the cost of the inputs. But for nationalization reasons, we might actually say we should do that. And if you look what's happening in tech, it's pretty crazy. We're kind of in this tech battle right now, trying to protect our technology from theft from other countries. So like, these aren't even physical goods anymore. Like we used to think about free trade. It's like, okay, you're gonna send me corn, I'm gonna send you auto parts and we're all gonna win because you can produce corn at a lower cost than I can. I can produce auto parts as a specialized manufacturing country better than you can. So let's all just share these resources. Now we're talking about intellectual property and something that software, things that we can't actually share, like recently it's semiconductors, whatever that right. may be. But this isn't about the, the hardware itself, it's about the IP behind it. So the, the narrative's changing. And so that is inflationary in general. 
Um, so it'll be really interesting over time because I think you are going to see that that's a super trend that we're not going to get away from. Speaking of super trends, something that actually Jeff Moore has been speaking about, I, I feel like for the last at least five years, it is population. And I was corrected the other day that I was quoting Canada's population in the 30s. Someone corrected me to say we've now hit 40. Yeah. So we're growing population. I believe the U.S. is as well. But that's a very unique phenomenon yeah. that so many places are seeing a contraction. Again, how are you seeing from even products and, and our RPMs? How are we thinking about that as I'll call it a mega trend of, especially take to Japan, for instance, how are countries going to deal with this? Yeah, it's, it's, it's really interesting. I'm going to take it two ways. Um, from a GDP growth standpoint, like GDP is pretty, pretty simple, right? Like it's how many workers you have and output per worker. And if you have aging demographics, so a declining population, that GDP formula is basically your output, your number of workers you have is decreasing, which is going to hit your GDP. And so all you can do there is increase the productivity per worker and that's through technology, right? So there's probably like heightened sensitivity around why governments are putting tariffs on technology um, just from protecting the economy um, from that standpoint. And then you compare, like Jeff's famous quote is like Fortress North America, right? Yes. Like China's aging, it's, it's going into population decline. India is going to pass it. It's the largest country in the world pretty soon. Um, Japan is the, the textbook example where they've had huge demographic problems for a really, really long time. Um, so they actually welcome inflation because when you have a declining population, you actually get disinflation rather than inflation where it's like, why would I spend my money today? Because I know things are going to be cheaper in the future, which is not a place where you, you need to be as, as a country. And then where you look at North America, it's like, okay, we're still increasing population. There's three ways you do it is you increase birth rates, you uh, decrease like death rates or increase long, uh, longevity, so the living age. Or you immigrate, so Canada, very pro-immigration, obviously. Um, cost of living is weighing on the, the birth rates. So it, it's, it's gonna be really interesting to see. So you're gonna have North America, which is probably the best demographic trends in the developed world. But then you still have the whole emerging markets that are going through rapid, rapid population growth. So you kind of say, okay, over the long term, where do I think the fastest growth's gonna be from a GDP standpoint? Because that kind of drives company earnings, all that right. stuff. You might say, I, I have to start looking at emerging markets over the long term because they are going to have more favorable demographics than anywhere in the developed world. It's going to be interesting yeah. to watch. Let's sort of get, keep with, the, with this big theme and let's talk about AI. Yeah. So here's my question is I think what so many people are trying to figure out is, is AI, I'll say, the new internet? And is this similar to when back when the internet came out and people were looking at this and going, how do we take advantage of this, this new thing? Or is this really just the internet with a with a bolt on that will make it more exciting. Are we viewing this that this is going to be almost the internet 2.0 and how it's going to change how all of us live our lives, do business? Where are we seeing this playing out? It's probably bigger than that. Um, it is going to change the way we do stuff. Um, I have a young boy and I was just, you should be a plumber. You know what the one thing that AI is never going to replace <laughs> is plumbers. It's probably <laughs> because like you need to get in there, you need to get your hands dirty. Um, and the trades aren't impacted. But if you just think about how it's being used today, like generative AI is so transformative where you can give it parameters, it builds you decks. So it's gonna, like when we talk about productivity of output per worker, it's really gonna change that. Like we're, we're probably gonna see huge productivity gains, um, but it, it is gonna come with kind of the retooling of our workforce, right? Because it, it is going to replace jobs. It is going to change the way we do it. And the internet did that. Like, I'm not saying it's a bad thing, 
but it, it is going to require a retooling of your workforce because it is going to increase productivity so much that it probably does change the way that, that we work as a society and certain fields impact them more than other, others. But just think about a world where it's like, okay, I'm going to a board meeting. I know I need to build this massive deck so I can go present to our leadership team. And all of a sudden, something that took me eight hours to do now takes me half an hour to do because I can say to the AI, here's the scopes, here's what I'm trying to say. Can you build it for me? And then it, you click through it, right? Like, I don't like that one. I don't like that one. I like that one. You're still involved. You're still manipulating it, but it's just making you so much faster what you do. So it is going to be quite uh, transformative in nature in terms of productivity gains. Do you see it as an industry-specific thing? And I always joke that now I used to use something like a Waze occasionally, but with yeah. Toronto and the states that it's in, I use Waze for going two blocks just because you, yeah. can, you can end up on the wrong street. Do you see certain industry, like especially if I'm thinking of like even the automotive industry, the transportation industry, yeah. as industries that AI could yeah. really change everything for the better? Well, every time I'm on Waze, I'm always screaming at it. It's like, you all know we're on this exact same app. Yeah. Why aren't you sending us in different directions to minimize traffic? And it's because we don't have autonomous cars yet, and it, it's getting there. But like, think about just a world where all cars are talking to each other, and Dave and I are trying to go to the same place, but it's smart enough to send us in different directions to reduce the congestion on a certain road. Like, Would we all be willing to travel an extra two kilometers because it's going to reduce the overall time that it all takes us rather than all sending us to the same place? So it's like, I'm like, Waze, you can do this today. You all have the addresses we're trying to go. Send me this way and send Dave that way. And then all of a sudden, we're going to reduce congestion there. So it is going to change that industry too. Just send him a note. We'll root yeah. back to everybody yeah. on, uh, on how we did. Yeah. Let's talk portfolio construction for a second. So you and I, I remember very distinctly doing one of these at least a year ago. Yeah. And every headline was the death of the 60-40 portfolio. It's done. It's worked forever, but now it's not going to work anymore. And yet here we sit today. So where are you on the thinking of the 60-40? I think bonds are back. So I, I was at a, at, a, at a conference last week at, at one of the dealers and someone asked me to kind of define bonds in, in one term. And I think I used the words like take the coupon and run. Like if you look at where yields are relative to, to where we are, the 10 year at, at um, four and a half in the States and four in Canada, like these are levels that we haven't seen in 10, 15 years or so. Um, and when we're talking about like, yeah, the, the Fed or the BOC might go one or two more times and the question is how long, it's, there's no guarantees in finance, but the reason you own bonds is because bonds in, in true, true recessions have historically been negative cor negatively correlated to stocks, right? They, they give you that capital appreciation when the bond market or the equity market's in severe trouble. And we didn't have that last year and that was because inflation was there and it, it produced that, that positive correlation. But everyone keeps talking about cash and it's driving me nuts on how much money is going to cash. And it's like the one guarantee that you can give kind of someone in a recession and in investing is a GIC does not post positive returns in a recession. And a deposit account in HISA does not produce positive returns in a recession, right? Like they're deposits and you got your coupon, that's great. But historically what we have seen is the reason the 60-40 has been so resilient throughout time is because Risk-free assets like the U.S. Treasuries, um, I don't want to call them risk-free anymore because we are seeing a lot of money printing, but safe haven assets like U.S. Treasuries have historically produced positive returns in addition to coupons when you are in true risk-off scenarios. And last year wasn't one of those events and they went positive, but I don't want to say the 60-40 is dead, but I think there is room for improvements in it. And 
diversification is one of those things that we're after. So you would have seen the, the news where we did the strategic agreement with Brookfield um, to bring real estate into some of our 6040s. That's a step forward on improving diversification. Um, and that's also kind of the impetus on, on what brought us to bring this uh, Global Equity Plus Fund together because as you look out down the horizon, things are more uncertain now than when we were in the zero interest rate policy era and everything was going up for this asset. So the big theme internally is, is, is diversification is probably paramount um, in what we're getting into this environment. You couldn't have done that better. Uh, so what a perfect segue uh, into talking about. So, so I want to set the stage a little bit that uh, the way this goes back is I went to Andrew probably about a year ago. I said, you know, Andrew, would we ever look at a Mark and Dan? We, we have Hugo in there. How would all of this work? And Andrew, can you talk about it? Because you took it away and really looked at it with your team to say, what could we build that, to your point, would give a, a great ride for investors, yeah. something that could be used by all of our advisor partners? Can you maybe walk us through how we got to this product that's uh, coming out in about two weeks? Yeah. And so any of you that have seen myself present before on any conference, whatever that may be, like timing markets is almost impossible. You've all seen that Smarty chart that we have investment styles, value, growth, momentum, dividend. Picking tops and bottoms is almost impossible to do, and that's why there's very few people that are successful at doing it. And what we also know about the industry is, regardless of how efficient markets you think there are, there's great behavioral bias. I'm like, I, I come to it too. Like, that fund did amazing last year, so I should probably take a look at it. And then everything is mean reverting, where you, you can't be the best at all times. Um, so what we did was we, we took a look at our lineup, and we said, okay, how can we create, just given our, our, our portfolio managers, a less cyclical experience, but styles that complement each other. Um, and I, I think that's twofold. So for what's in it for the, the advice channel is it, it, it's less cyclicality. So that generally that means less client phone calls. What, why is this fund down 30% or why is this fund up 100%? I need to buy more of it. Um, so I, I think that's what we tried to achieve. And just given the size of our shelf, we kind of looked at it and said, okay, how can we do this best? And so you get Mark, who's, we know, like momentum growth bias. Val, uh, value is Dan DuPont, probably the, the best known value manager in the country. And over long time periods, he does really, really well. Over long time periods, Mark does really, really well, but they have that cyclicality in it. And he goes this like kind of like core balancer between the two styles so they don't just offset each other. Where the, the contrarian was a, a really, really nice addition to it. So it's one third uh, Mark, one third Hugo, one third Dan. But we also did one third, so 10% of Dan's 33% of global value long short. And alternatives are a really, really interesting point in time right now because to your point, the 60-40 last year, to be frank, stunk, right? Both bonds and equity lost money. Um, to provide that uncorrelated return is this unique mix where the more you increase it, the more you reduce the vol volatility of the overall portfolio. So you look at something like global value long short and say, Okay, that is rated by itself a high risk portfolio. But when you put it in there with the long equity portfolios, the total composition profile, the risk of that total portfolio actually goes down. And by uh, doing a 10%, we're actually able to do it in just a normal mutual fund. So it's not a liquid alternative. So the whole planning space now has access to this all through a, a one ticket solution that we're really, really excited about because A, it, it, it does offer that downside protection. Be it uppers that upside participation that we know that, that Mark does really, really well in. And we're able to do it in a much smoother client journey. So I think it's kind of that win-win for everyone. And heading into uncertain times, um, having that diversification from a style, I think is really, really important. Can you walk through everyone, Andrew, if they're looking at their portfolios and thinking, okay, 
is this a global fund? Is this got more of a Canada tilt? Like, yeah. how would they slot this into their portfolio? Is it a catch-all for yeah. sort of the equity portion? How do you see it fitting in? Yeah, it, it's going to fall on global equity, but it, it, it is more U.S. and Canadian equity heavy. Like, I, I think all three of those managers will tell you, I don't care where the company's located. I just care if that company is going to beat the market. But when you look at the way they're set up, um, it's more U.S. biased. Canadian large caps, obviously. And uh, Hugo in, in Greater Canada is more Canadian focused, but they're running about 50% uh, global. And then you kind of look, okay, where are they seeing opportunities internationally? They're going to roam wherever the market's taking them. Like I, I know there's some interest in, in the UK market just given valuations. There's some interest in the Japanese market given valuations. But it is going to be more US, Canadian heavy. But if there's opportunity at it, they're going to go and take that, all three of them. So I think you kind of look this, this is my core equity holding, and I can start bolting on styles or niche type stuff uh, around the periphery. Outside. You, yeah. you mentioned a little, Andy, could you talk about the ride? Some of the things that yeah. made me excited when you first showed us the deck on this was we talk a lot about upside and downside capture. For instance, you know, Dan yeah. has brilliant downside yeah. capture. So can you talk to us about with this product about how we didn't want to give up the up, but on the same yeah. portion, we wanted to have great downside, which typically for us, it's a tough thing to have both. Yeah. How in your mind has this seemingly achieved great upside yet with a great downside to your point, which limits client conversations that aren't a lot of fun to have? Yeah, I think it's the style compliment and the way they manage money and, and letting them do what they do in isolation without like kind of forcing that, okay, we can only own 80 names and this PM wants this and this PM wants that. Like that, that's tough, right? Like you have a risk budget there. But it, it's quite amazing. The combination of Dan and more particularly the global value long short in that portfolio really, really helps the downside. So we looked at kind of every simulated scenario and it's like, historically, this would have done significantly better on the downside. But then on the upside, you get the, the advantage with kind of Mark and Hugo's up there as well. So you're, you're, you're getting that, that style diversification, which gives you some of the most historical, like really, really attractive risk adjusted returns. And so you're like, okay, this, this fun, great downside protector, but we all know that Mark has a history of doing really, really well on the upside. And so you're, you're, you're getting that full benefit and the, the style complementary between the, the momentum growth, the, the contrarian and the value is just kind of that, that balance that we are trying to achieve and it, and it works out really nicely for the client. And we have a great question, a clarifying question that came in, which says, when you're talking about the global value long short, are we talking 10% of the overall fund or 10% of Dan's, one, uh, Dan's a third? And can you walk through everyone why? Because there was a little bit of strategic reason on why we yeah. kept it at that 10%. So it's 10% of the overall fund. Um, so then CLC would be the 23.3%. And the reason for that is in mutual fund world, to be an, a normal 81-102 fund, liquid alts are capped at 10%. So this is a strategically balanced fund where this is what would allow us to get the strategy in, into the planning channel and, and the normal mutual fund. But it's also... Uh, I think there's the regulators are pretty good at what they do. There's a reason liquid alts are capped at 10% and it's because you don't want to overwhelm the fund with that. So it's, it's the perfect balance of what allowed it to achieve that downside kind of metrics that we were seeking within the fund, but also allow us to, to maximize the benefits of uncorrelated assets within traditional mutual fund structure. Bunch of questions coming in on, on the structure of this new product. Can you walk us through from a rebalancing point of view and even a risk point of view, how is that going to look for this product? Yeah, so 
the way that we set up our funds is pretty smart, if you ask me. Like the, the reality is, is we always buy kind of at the strategic weights. So like whenever money's coming in, you're kind of automatically bringing it back to that, that strategic mix. But when it does deviate, um, we have asset allocators that sit on the top to make sure that those balances are always in check. So when I say, think about North Star, same setup, like it, it's strategically set up to design these. We're always pretty close to those numbers, but when we need to intervene, we will intervene and bring them back to the, the strategic weights. Um, and, and I do joke that we, we do have the best operating team and the best portfolio management team in the country, at least in my opinion. So when we design these things, they are set up to stay pretty close to, to what they're set up to do. Which in theory to me though is the story that we're all trying to do, which is again, we'll, we'll use Mark as an example. If he's running, you're using that as an opportunity to take profits. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and there'll be bands that'll let, that'll let Mark run. Um, and, and they are set up within that, but we, we generally keep it pretty tight, but it, it does let your winners run to a degree and let your losers underperform for a bit. But then at least once a year, if not more, we'll, we'll take that back, take the profits off, go back to the strategic mix. So I think it is kind of the best of both worlds where if one style is outperforming, it will get that benefit to a degree within that. Within right, that's the theory of this, is yeah, that you'll yeah. always have one that's working and one that's, yeah. that, that's not in their zone, so to speak. Yeah, and, it, and it's really exciting. Like I, I looked at it for my own account, I said, great, I don't need to go in and rebalance my stuff now, which is, is pretty exciting because that is a lot of work. Um, it also kind of takes like the whole operational side out of how I manage my own money on a day-to-day -day basis, so I'm excited for it to go. You and me both. I think yeah. this is going to be a game-changing, I'll call it, product for us here. So it's very exciting. Uh, and maybe just a, a final thought for everyone as we head into, I'll just say, the, the colder months of the year. Any just thoughts you'd like to leave our advisor partners with? No, I think this is a, a really exciting time for both Fidelity and the advice channel. Um, where we came out of zero interest rate policy, all risk assets went up and zero interest rates. It didn't really matter what you own. Um, all rising, uh, rising tide lifts all boats. Is kind of the saying, but I think we are coming into a market for the value advice and stock picking, to be frank. Um, you and I take business cases to our leadership team quite regularly. Like this is one of them where we would have to prove to, to management this is a good opportunity for us. And one of the things is you kind of take profitability, you look backwards using discount rates, and everything had an MPV that was positive in a zero interest rate policy. And I feel that as Fidelity, given the size of our research capabilities, we might meet. Um, if not the, the most CEOs in the country um, on a research basis, if not up there in the world. Um, so picking winners from losers is probably more important now than it's ever been. And the reason for that is the quality of management matters in the, in the S&P 500 anywhere in the, the globe. So I think it's a, a really exciting time to be a actively managed shop compared to passive. But that translates into the advice channel as well because clients are probably have more questions now than they have ever had. So I think it's a really exciting time to be a advisor, just proving the value of the advice and keeping investors in check and those emotions down and staying the course. So I think we are kind of coming into this golden era of active management, but also the value of advice. So I'm pretty excited despite the, the economic headwinds or uncertainty we face. Absolutely and well said. I'll just close out by thanking everybody. Have a great week. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. 
Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.